before we open our Bibles, let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for bearing the shame that, that we don't have to bear. Thank you for erasing our guilt, for being someone that we could never be ashamed of. Lord, please be with us this evening as we open your word and read the painful story of your death. Please give us a fuller understanding of you. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be opening up our Bibles to Mark 15, 16 to 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we're at the climax of the story here. Jesus had been condemned by Pilate and now led out to be crucified. Who are the main character groups in this story? Not individuals, but who are the primary acting parties? Soldiers. Soldiers. Simon. Simon. Who? I have an assumption of who Simon is a part of, but I feel like Simon is a, a greater group in the story. Passersby, the, the Jews, and I mean Jesus himself, I guess, is a group of his own here. So I'd like to look into the perspectives of each of those in the story. So starting off with the Roman perspective. What do the Romans have against Jesus? If we read, sorry, I, saw the, I see the hand. I'll get there in a second. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together a whole battalion, which is the word for a tenth of a legion, which is about 600 men. Why are 600 men getting together to abuse this man who is innocent. Yes, Abram. Because 
and they claim to be a king of the Jews. Yeah. <coughs> so, okay, claiming to be the king of the Jews, why is that a problem? Because Rome is pretty much king of the Jews. Right. So, do the Romans like the Jews? No. What do the Romans want with the Jews? Submission. Yes. Okay. Do they have it? Generally, yes. But, I mean, the Jews were a terribly troublesome people for the Romans, especially in the first century. And what the Romans want here is just peace. They want, they want their taxes. They want their trade to go through there. They want all that to be fine. But here in the morning, it's before 9 o'clock, and here's an angry mob coming to, to Pilate. Already, this is kind of a roll your eyes, like, come on, guys, let me sleep in. But now he's got something to deal with. Who is the, who is the angry mob? Who is part of the angry mob is kind of the question. It's Jewish leadership. Yes, Jewish leadership. Who is the angry mob not? Who is not in the angry mob, are we assuming? The disciples. The Pharisees are not mentioned anywhere in this story, which I found fascinating. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Um, and... So it's really, the main characters are the Jewish leadership. So there's one faction of the Jews. Also, Jesus, yes, the disciples, the broader disciples. So when we think of the triumphal entry, there's, there's often uh, the argument that these people who were hailing him coming into town just a week earlier are now calling crucify him. <coughs> That's at least not my reading of that. I believe that the people who were hailing him coming into the city probably haven't been alerted to this. It's, it's the temple leadership who were saying, silence these people who are now saying, crucify him. So what does Rome want with this riot? They want it gone. They want peace again. Right now, they've only got one faction. If they get multiple factions, we could have a real bloody riot in the streets of people trying to save the leader of Jesus' faction, that that would be a legitimate concern of, of the people trying to keep civil order. So they want to get it dealt with quickly? Sure. Crucify him. Okay, now we get a whole battalion to abuse this man. What? Yeah, again, what do they have against him? There was an answer. What was the answer? Somebody said something. Yeah, because he's the king of the Jews. That's right. Okay. As a, as a ruling class, the Romans, or anybody who is subjugating their people, especially Jews who fight back often as zealots, if I'm a Roman soldier and my buddy's been killed by some of these Jews... How do I feel about the Jews in general? Generally negative. 
Now, here's an opportunity. Here's a Jew that we're going to crucify. And we have a chance. 600 probably angry soldiers who don't really like the Jews that much because they're the ones who are causing the problems that they have to deal with. Now, they get a chance to take it out on this one man. And so we're going to take our opportunity, beat him, get our anger out. So not only are they trying to mock Jesus by this, but they're mocking all the Jews through him. Saying, King of the Jews, not only is this like you bloody and spit-covered guy on the ground, you think you're a king, yeah, you're king of the Jews because they're all bloody and spit-covered. And that's all, all they deserve is kind of the, the message they're trying to say. Ironically, they are right in saying that he is king of the Jews. And, and the punishment that he's taking, he hasn't even died yet. And he's already taken the punishment for all the Jews. Okay. Now, they take him out to be... Cru- oh, I should just keep reading for a second. Then I'll find my spot again. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why is that in there? First of all, Jesus is now bloodied and, and too weak to carry a cross. But also, the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's kind of a... Uh, yeah, were you gonna? That's what I was going to say. Obviously, the recipients of the gospel knew Alexander and Rufus. Yeah. So it had personal meaning for them. Right. So, oh yeah, you know, these guys' dad, he was there. If you, and yet another reminder of this is a historical truth. And mm-hmm. if you want reinforcement, just go ask Alexander and Rufus. Because their dad was there. Um, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. What do we know about myrrh? It's very expensive. In this case, it was probably being used as a narcotic because it would deaden the senses so that he wouldn't feel it as much. But he refused it. They crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the, of the charge read to, against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple again and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. I'm going to stop there. Now, if you look at cruci- look into crucifixion, it's absolutely <coughs> horrible. And it's straight out of a horror movie. But Mark doesn't really focus on the pain and the suffering and the blood and all the ways it kills you in different terrible and painful ways. What is Mark focusing on in the story? 
humiliation. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, Mark's not denying the thing. He says he was crucified. But what Jesus is enduring here is, is absolutely humiliating. And the Romans are trying to, the Romans and the Jews, trying to put him down as you said you were king of the Jews, but you're absolutely humiliated. Being crucified was something that was not, you were not allowed to do that to a Roman citizen. And so they were trying to say that he's the lowest of the low. Using, you mentioned the shame and honor system earlier. And so, so are people familiar with the shame, honor versus guilt, innocence systems? Where in, in some cultures, what, we, what, what the culture is interested in is shame or honor. So you clearly want honor and you don't want shame. So if you get away with something, you're still honorable. Whereas the alternative to that is the guilt and innocence where it doesn't really matter whether people saw me do the good thing or the bad thing. It's the guilt and the innocence that matters rather than the shame or the honor that I would have gotten from it. Is that clear? Okay, so the Roman system is very much a shame and honor system where they are trying to put Jesus down and shame him. Where it's clear he's innocent. So in in the guilt-innocence system, He's clear. That's, I'm going to say that's God's system right here. Because God cares about guilt and innocence, not so much as shame and honor, which is pretty clear in, in the death, the terribly shameful death of his son. Next, we're going to move on to the Jewish perspective. Here's a question. Yeah, please. Not my answer. It was such a cruel death. And they beat him up, beat him pretty good beforehand. Why would they even care to offer him wine and myrrh? Mike was not getting an answer from you, but it's like, why in the world would they even care to do that for him? I mean, I can't, yeah, you're right. I can't factually say. I think it might have been he asked, customary. In, in another book, he asked, he said he was thirsty. Oh, so okay, that right. comes later on. When he drinks the, the wine mixed with vinegar. It's here. Uh, and someone ran and filled the sponge with sour uh, wine and put it on a reed and gave it, yeah, yeah verse 36. Oh, okay. So, Nate, did you have your hand up there? It doesn't make it clear whether it's soldiers or maybe if there are some sympathetic people mm-hmm. um, there, perhaps. They remembered trying to help him out and he refused. I think the likelihood of friendly bystanders, well, I mean, there, it happens in another gospel, but I think that comes a fair bit later. Because at this time, it said somewhere that, oh yeah, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom, but that's not necessarily the men. But typically, I think the crucifixion squad of like four soldiers and a centurion kind of doing their own thing. Um, Jewish perspective. High school, yes. 
Ben, you got another question? I just wanted to comment really briefly, actually. You're talking about shame and honor and how we can see Christ being covered in shame here. Mark is highlighting the shameful aspects of the crucifixion of Christ. And I just think it's so powerful that we worship a God who obviously has created and understands all cultures. So we have fear and power cultures, shame and honor cultures, and guilt and innocence cultures. And how is Christ treated? To every one of those cultures, Christ is either it, he's in fear, he's in shame, and he's in guilt, when really what he deserves is power, honor, and he is innocent. Um, and I think just God is making the point so clearly for his upside-down kingdom, he's sending his son to be covered in every kind of negative, most negative treatment humans can conceive. And even that in the story where it seems that he is in fear and in shame and in guilt, in reality, he's innocent and he's in power and he's honored through all of it. Yeah. Okay, now we're moving on to the Jewish perspective. High schoolers, what is the cycle of the judges? Yeah. Um, everything is good for the Israelites for a while because they're respecting obeying God. And then once everything's good, then they start to stray from God. And then they find themselves in a bad position and then beg God to come back and save them. And then it starts all over again. Right. Because God does come back and save them. Okay. So this is really throughout the entire Old Testament. <coughs> it's the cycle of the judges because it's in Judges. But it plays out throughout the entire Old Testament, down to the exile even, where Israel is disobedient and they are exiled and punished for their their disobedience, but then the remnant comes back. From that, we talked about this this morning too, where, how do you feel about how you need to stand before God? and the consequences of not not obeying God and everything. It gives you the feeling of needing to make sure that I've got it right. Because if we don't offer our sacrifices, if we don't obey these 613 laws that are set out for us, we're going to get exiled. We're going to have our neighbors come down and beat us. And then we're going to have to cry out for a judge again. So, in a setting where the temple complex has it kind of good, you know, we've, we've come to an understanding, we're not getting beaten down. Then a renegade rabbi comes in and starts saying, you guys have it all messed up. You guys aren't obeying God anymore. Like, you need to change what you're doing. Now, to an orthodox Jewish leader at this point, Guy, you better stop talking, or we're going to get exiled again. Also interesting to this story, one of the things that I noticed so much was how much the Romans who were not involved in the rest of it were in this, because the Jews only come back to the story in verse 29. So only three verses in this passage. 
And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So the fact that Jesus is getting crucified at this point is almost proof to them that we got it right. This guy was doing it wrong, and God's putting him down. So the, like, um, Gamaliel in Acts, who says, if it's from God, it'll continue. If not, it'll die out. They're watching a suspect religious movement die with great relief. I also hesitate to quote the Apocrypha in church, but the Book of Wisdom, verse, er, chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, says, Let us see if his words are true, and let us put his life to the test. For if the righteous one is God's son, God will help him and save him from the hand of his adversaries. So the Jews have kind of bought into the shame and honor system and presume that if Jesus is victorious and honored, then he's resisting the shame. But then, then he will resist the shame and honor himself by proving them wrong. But Jesus' focus here isn't on avoiding the shame. It's guilt and innocence, specifically our guilt and innocence, not even his own. So you can tell that my mind's been in Judges a fair bit because Jesus' death here at the hands of the Jews is kind of like, or at the hands of the Romans via the Jews, is kind of like Israel capturing Ehud after returning. So Ehud is the one who killed the king of Moab and then ran away back and then led Israel to, to freedom from Moab. But in this story, it's almost like Ehud kills the king of Moab, runs away, and then Israel's like, whoa, hey, Moab, this guy just killed your king, and we don't want you to be mad at us, so take him and deal with him. Don't come down on us. So, and then lastly, the Mark's gospel does not, doesn't have anything about um, the sign, but the inscription against him reads, the king of the Jews. Now we read in John that they they say like, don't don't write that he said he or that he is the king of the Jews. Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. So I mean they clearly don't like it that he's being their king because they they recognize that the Romans are mocking them and like this crucified man is our king. No, he's not. They they don't want to say that. But it's. It was required for the charge of a crucified victim to be posted on the cross. And for the Jews, what are they going to say? What are they going to put on this inscription? So first of all, not only, like, they don't really have a say. They can't say, change it, because we don't like that. But even if they were to say, change it, what are they going to change it to? Because their charge against him is that he is the king of the Jews or that he was setting himself up as the king of the Jews. So they, they have fully accepted their position of subservience to Rome at this point. And in their, they've misplaced 
their point in the cycle of the judges where they're trying to say, no, we don't want God to put us as a subject nation or exile us again. They're already subject to Rome, but also, more importantly, to sin in this case. And they don't realize that the judge has come. And they're killing the judge. Lastly, God's perspective, or Mark's perspective, the perspective we read in Mark's gospel, that this is really it. This is the point that the Bible's been leading up to. The, the parable of the tenants, where the master of the vineyard sends his servants, sends his servants, and they keep beating him and leaving him out, and then he sends his son. This is, this is where we're at, the part where they kill his son, and send him away. And you can kind of even, you can read it in Mark. Everything in here is just a reference to something else. It's almost like you're getting to the, the climax of a movie and you know how you've got, you've got the hero there and like close up on his face and then it flashes back to some other point in the movie that kind of predicted this and then goes a step and then flashes back to another point in the movie. And I'm going to try this. We'll see if it works. Okay, we're going to... And I would actually encourage you to turn back to your Bible, starting at verse 19. Mark 15, verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from mocking and spitting. Coming back. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Back to verse 21. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Psalm 22, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Back in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. One on his right and one on his left. Uh, Mark 10, verse 37. This is where James and John are asking, talking to Jesus. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Mark 8, verse 11. 
The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. God's got this under control. He saw this coming from a mile away. This is all, this is all on purpose. Innocence and guilt. Jesus is clearly innocent. Even while, while it looks like he's absolutely guilty. Someone hanging on a cross generally does look guilty. Honored and shamed. Same. He's honored. This is all... This was the plan. Fear and power. Jesus is undergoing the most powerful act of history. I mean, I'm going to combine that with the resurrection. Do you have something to say? Oh, there's so much irony in every statement. Like, you can almost you know, save others, you can't save himself. Right. By not saving himself, he's saving others. Yes, he can save himself, and he is saving others. Right, and he could, he's, in terms of humans, he's the only one who could save himself, but he doesn't. He right. Not to, um, and then the, just the mockery of, or the, the temptations of Satan come back also here. That, uh, mm-hmm. um, if. Yeah. If you can do this, then we'll believe in you. Right. Uh, if you are the Son of God, come down from there. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the whole time. They're not the masters of the situation. And even, even the king of the Jews, the mockery of him being the king of the Jews, it's every knee will bow and every tongue confess. They might not realizing it, realize it, but they're... They're bowing to him and they're confessing his kingship. Whether it be genuine or not, it's in the historical truth, it's it's genuine. In conclusion, it's tempting to read the passage and think, wow, God had this all planned, and we know he's coming back in three days, and that'll show those dirty Romans and Jews. Crazy how we often look at these, look at stories like this, narratives and see the good guys and the bad guys. Where Jesus is the good guy and those terrible people who crucified Jesus, like, they're the bad guys. But from looking at the different perspective, perspectives in the crucifixion, I think there's two important takeaways to highlight. Number one, both the Jews and Romans actually have highly relatable perspectives. And if I've explained it well enough, as, a, as I intended to, then I can kind of see where the Romans are coming from. I can see why they did what they did. I can see where the Jews are coming from and why they did what they did. And honestly, if I could time travel myself there and know what they knew, I don't know that I would have done different. I would like to think I would. But I can see why they did what they did. And so hopefully we can, well, I think that many of us can recognize these tendencies in ourselves. What they did is wrong, it's sinful and unforgivable, but whether we like it or not, they're the ones that represent us here. 
or at best, the disciples would represent us. And we haven't heard from the disciples at all in this part of the story. They're just not here. The second thing is that the Jews and the Romans are children of God, made in his image, loved and cherished. I heard a wise man once say that Jesus loves sinners. (laughs) And that even through the mockery, while they mocked him, Jesus loved them and died for them. Isaiah 53 again, starting at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Amen.